Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Kim, by Roger Kipling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kim. By Rudyard Kipling, read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Eleven, Part One. Give the man who is not made to his trade swords to fling and catch again, coins to ring and snatch again, men to harm and cure again, snakes to charm and lure again. He'll be hurt by his own blade, by his serpents disobeyed. By his clumsiness berayed, by the people mocked to scorn. So tis not with juggler born, pinch of dust or withered flower, chance flung fruit or borrowed staff, serve his needs and sure his power, bind the spell or loose the laugh. But a man who, etc. The Juggler's Song, Opus 15 followed a sudden natural reaction. "'Now I am alone, all alone,' he thought. "'In India is no one so alone as I. If I die to-day, who shall bring the news, and to whom? If I live, and God is good, there will be a price upon my head, for I am a son of the charm, I, Kim.' A very few white people, but many Asiatics, can throw themselves into amazement, as it were, by repeating their own names over and over again to themselves, letting the mind go free upon speculation as to what is called personal identity. When one grows older, the power usually departs, but while it lasts, it may descend upon a man at any moment. Who is Kim? Kim! Kim! He squatted in a corner of the clanging waiting-room, wrapped from all other thoughts, his hands folded in lap, and pupils contracted to pinpoints. In a minute, in another half-second, he felt he would arrive at the solution of the tremendous puzzle. But here, as always happens, his mind dropped away from those heights with the rush of a wounded bird, and passing his hand before his eyes, he shook his head. A long-haired Hindu Bairagi, holy man, who had just bought a ticket, halted before him at that moment, and stared intently. "'I also have lost it,' he said sadly. "'It is one of the gates to the way, but for me it has been shut many years.' "'What is the talk?' said Kim, abashed. Thou wast wondering there in thy spirit what manner of thing thy soul might be. The seizure came of a sudden. I know. Who should know but I? 
Whither goest thou? Toward Kashi, Benares. There are no gods there. I have proved them. I go to Peirag, Alabad, for the fifth time, seeking the road to enlightenment. What faith art thou? I too am a seeker, said Kim, using one of the lama's pet words. Though, he forgot his northern dress for the moment, though Allah alone knoweth what I seek. The old fellow slipped the Baraji's crutch under his armpit, and sat down on a patch of ruddy leopard-skin as Kim rose at the call for the Benares train. "'Go in hope, little brother,' he said. "'It is a long road to the feet of the one, but whither do we all travel?' Kim did not feel so lonely after this, and ere he sat out twenty miles in the crowded compartment, was cheering his neighbours with a string of most wonderful yarns about his own and his master's magical gifts. Benares struck him as a particularly filthy city, though it was pleasant to find how his cloth was respected. At least one-third of the population prays eternally to some group or other of the many million deities, and so reveres every sort of holy man. Kim was guided to the temple of the Tirthankars, about a mile outside the city, near Sanath, by a chance-met Punjabi farmer, a Kambot from Jalandur way, who had appealed in vain to every god of his homestead to cure his small son, and was trying Benares as a last resort. "'Thou art from the north?' he asked, shouldering through the press of the narrow, stinking streets much like his own pet bull at home. "'Aye, I know the Punjab. My mother was a Paharin, but my father came from Amritsra, by Jandaila,' said Kim, oiling his ready tongue for the needs of the road. "'Jandaila? Jalandur? Oho! Then we be neighbours in some sort, as it were.' He nodded tenderly to the wailing child in his arms. "'Whom dost thou serve?' A most holy man at the temple of the Tirthankars. They are all most holy and most greedy, said the Jat with bitterness. I have walked the pillars and trodden the temples till my feet are flayed, and the child is no whit better, and the mother being sick too. Hush, then, little one. We changed his name when the fever came. We put him in girls' clothes. There was nothing we did not do except—I said to his mother when she bundled me off to Benares, she should have come with me—I said Shaki Swara Sultan would serve us best. We know his generosity, but these down-country gods are strangers." The child turned on the cushion of the huge corded arms and looked at Kim through heavy eyelids. "'And was it all worthless?' Kim asked, with easy interest. "'Worthless! All worthless!' said the child, lips cracking with fever. "'The gods have given him a good mind, at least,' said the father proudly. "'To think he should have listened so cleverly! Yonder is thy temple. Now I am a poor man. Many priests have dealt with me. But my son is my son, and if a gift to thy master can cure him, I am at my very wit's end." Kim considered for a while, tingling with pride. Three years ago 
he would have made a prompt profit on the situation and gone his way without a thought. But now the very respect the Jat paid him proved that he was a man. Moreover, he had tasted fever once or twice already, and knew enough to recognize starvation when he saw it. "'Call him forth, and I will give him a bond on my best yoke, so that the child is cured.' Kim halted at the carved outer door of the temple. A white-clad Oswald banker from Ajmir, his sins of usury new wiped out, asked him what he did. "'I am Chela to Teshu Lama, and Holy One from Bautiyal, within there. He bade me come. I wait. Tell him.' "'Do not forget the child!' cried the importunate Jat over his shoulder, and then he bellowed in Punjabi, "'O oh, Holy One! O oh, disciple of the Holy One! O oh, gods above all the worlds! Behold affliction sitting at the gate!' That cry is so common in Benares that the passers never turned their heads. The Oswal, at peace with mankind, carried the message into the darkness behind him, and the easy, uncounted eastern minutes slid by, for the lama was asleep in his cell, and no priest would wake him. When the click of his rosary again broke the hush of the inner court, where the calm images of the Arhats stand, a novice whispered, Thy chela is here, and the old man strode forth, forgetting the end of that prayer. Hardly had the tall figure shown in the doorway than the jat ran before him, and, lifting up the child, cried, Look upon this holy one, and if the gods will he lives, he lives. He fumbled in his waist-belt, and drew out a small silver coin. What is now? The lama's eyes turned to Kim. It was noticeable that he spoke far clearer Urdu than long ago under Zamzamah, but the father would allow no private talk. "'It is no more than a fever,' said Kim. "'The child is not well fed.' "'He sickens at everything, and his mother is not here.' "'If it be permitted, may I cure, Holy One?' "'What? Have they made thee a healer? Wait here,' said the lama and he sat down by the jat upon the lowest step of the temple, while Kim, looking out of the corner of his eyes, slowly opened the little beetle-box. He had dreamed dreams at school of returning to the lama as a sahib, of chaffing the old man before he revealed himself. Boys' dreams all. There was more drama in this abstracted, brow-puckered search through the tabloid bottles with a pause here and there for thought, and a muttered invocation between whiles. Quinine he had in tablets, and dark-brown meat-lozenges—beef, most probably—that was not his business. The little thing would not eat, but it sucked at a lozenge greedily, and said it liked the salt taste. "'Take then these six. Kim handed them to the man. "'Praise the gods, and boil three in milk.' the other three in water. After he has drunk the milk, give him this. It was the half of a quinine pill. And wrap him warm. Give him the water of the other three, and the other half of this white pill when he wakes. Meantime, here is another brown medicine that he may suck at on the way home. Gods, what wisdom! said the Kambo, snatching. 
It was as much as Kim could remember of his own treatment in a bout of autumn malaria, if you accept the patter that he had added to impress the lama. "'Now go. Come again in the morning.' "'But the price! The price!' said the Jat, and threw back his sturdy shoulders. "'My son is my son. Now that he will be whole again, how shall I go back to his mother and say, I took help by the wayside, and did not even give a bowl of curds in return?' "'They are all alike, these Jats,' said Kim softly. "'The Jat stood on his dunghill, and the king's elephants went by. "'O oh, driver,' said he, "'what will you sell those little donkeys for?' The Jat burst into a roar of laughter, stifled with apologies to the lama. "'It is the saying of my own country, the very talk of it. So are we Jats all. I will come to-morrow with the child, and the blessing of the gods of the homesteads, who are good little gods, be on you both. Now, son, we grow strong again. Do not spit it out, little princeling. King of my heart, do not spit it out. We shall be strong men, wrestlers and club-wheelers by morning." He moved away, crooning and mumbling. The lama turned to Kim, and all the loving old soul of him looked out through his narrow eyes. "'To heal the sick is to acquire merit. But first one gets knowledge. That was wisely done, O friend of all the world.' "'I was made wise by thee, Holy One,' said Kim, forgetting the little play just ended, forgetting St. Xavier's, forgetting his white blood, forgetting even the great game, as he stooped Mohammedan fashion to touch his master's feet in the dust of the Jain temple. "'My teaching I owe to thee. I have eaten thy bread three years. My time is finished. I am loosed from the schools. I come to thee.' Herein is my reward. Enter, enter, and is all well?" They passed to the inner court, where the afternoon sun sloped golden across. "'Stand that I may see so!' he peered critically. "'It is no longer a child, but a man, ripened in wisdom, walking as a physician. I did well, I did well, when I gave thee up to the armed man on that black night. Dost thou remember our first day under Zamzamar? Ay, said Kim, dost thou remember when I leapt off the carriage the first day I went to? The gates of learning? Truly! And the day that we ate the cakes together, at the back of the river by Nucklau, aha! Many times hast thou begged for me, but that day I begged for thee. Good reason, quoth Kim. I was then a scholar in the gates of learning, and attired as a sahib. Do not forget, holy one, he went on playfully, I am still a sahib by thy favour. True and a sahib in most high esteem. Come to my cell, Chela. How is that known to thee? The lama smiled. First by means of letters from the kindly priest, 
whom we met in the camp of armed men. But he is now gone to his own country, and I sent the money to his brother. Colonel Crichton, who had succeeded to the trusteeship when Father Victor went to England with the Mavericks, was hardly the chaplain's brother. But I do not well understand the Sahib's letters. They must be interpreted to me. I chose a surer way. Many times when I returned from my search to this temple, which has always been a nest to me, there came one seeking enlightenment, a man from Leh. That has been, he said, a Hindu, but wearied of all those gods. The lama pointed to the Arhats. A fat man? said Kim, a twinkle in his eye. Very fat, but I perceived in a little his mind was wholly given up to useless things such as devils and charms, and the form and fashion of our tea-drinkings in the monasteries, and by what road we initiated the novices. A man abounding in questions, but he was a friend of thine, Chela. He told me that thou wast on the road to much honour as a scribe, and I see thou art a physician. Yes, that I am, a scribe when I am a sahib, but it is set aside when I come as thy disciple. I have accomplished the years appointed for a sahib. As it were a novice, said the lama, nodding his head. Art thou freed from the schools? I would not have thee unripe. I am all free. In due time I take service under the government as a scribe. Not as a warrior, that is well. But first I come to wander with thee. Therefore I am here. Who begs for thee these days? He went on quickly. The ice was thin. Very often I beg myself, but as thou knowest, I am seldom here, except when I come to look again at my disciple. From one end to another of Hind have I travelled afoot and in the terrain, a great and wonderful land. But here, when I put in, is though I were in my own Baltiyal. He looked round at the little clean cell complacently. A low cushion gave him a seat, on which he had disposed himself in the cross-legged attitude of the Bodhisat, emerging from meditation. A black teakwood table, not twenty inches high, set with copper teacups, was before him. In one corner stood a tiny altar, also of heavily carved teak, bearing a copper-gilt image of the seated Buddha, and fronted by a lamp, an incense-holder, and a pair of copper flower-pots. The keeper of the images in the wonder-house acquired merit by giving me these a year since, he said, following Kim's eye. When one is far from one's own land, such things carry remembrance, and we must reverence the Lord, for that he showed the way. See! 
he pointed to a curiously built mound of coloured rice crowned with a fantastic metal ornament when i was abbot in my own place before i came to better knowledge i made that offering daily it is the sacrifice of the universe to the lord thus do we of bodhiyal offer all the world daily to the excellent law and i do it even now though i know that the excellent one is beyond all pinchings and pattings he snuffed from his gourd it is well done holy one kim murmured sinking at ease on the cushions very happy and rather tired and also the old man chuckled i write pictures of the wheel of life three days to a picture i was busied on it or it may be i shut my eyes a little when they brought word of thee it is good to have thee here i will show thee my art not for pride's sake but because thou must learn the sahibs have not all this world's wisdom he drew from under the table a sheet of strangely scented yellow chinese paper the brushes and a slab of indian ink in cleanest severest outlines he had traced the great wheel with its six spokes whose centre is the conjoined hog snake and dove ignorance anger and lust and whose compartments are all the heavens and hells and all the chances of human life men say that the bodhisat himself first drew it with grains of rice upon dust to teach his disciples the cause of things many ages have crystallized it into a most wonderful convention crowded with hundreds of little figures whose every line carries a meaning few can translate the picture parable there are not twenty in all the world who can draw it surely without a copy of those who can both draw and expound are but three i have a little learned to draw said kim but this is a marvel beyond marvels i have written it for many years said the lama time was when i could write it all between one lamplighting and the next i will teach thee the art after due preparation and i will show thee the meaning of the wheel we take the road then the road and our search i was but waiting for thee it was made plain to me in a hundred dreams notably one that came upon the night of the day that the gates of learning first shut that without thee i should never find my river again and again as thou knowst i put this from me fearing an illusion therefore i would not take thee with me that day at luck now when we ate the cakes i would not take thee till the time was right and auspicious from the hills to the sea from the sea to the hills have i gone but it was vain 
Then I remembered the Jataka. He told Kim the story of the elephant with the leg-iron, as he had told it so often to the Jain priests. "'Further testimony is not needed,' he ended serenely. "'Thou wast sent for an aid. That aid removed, my search came to naught. Therefore we will go out again together, and our search is sure.' Whither go we? What matters, friend of all the world? The search, I say, is sure. If need be, the river will break from the ground before us. I acquired merit when I sent thee to the gates of learning, and gave thee the jewel that is wisdom. Thou didst return. I saw even now a follower of Sakya Mundi, the physician whose altars are many in Bodhiyal. There, it is sufficient. We are together, and all things are as they were. Friend of all the world, friend of the stars, my Chela. Then they talked of matters secular, but it was noticeable that the lama never demanded any details of life at St. Xavier's, nor showed the faintest curiosity as to the manners and customs of Sahib's. His mind moved all in the past, and he revived every step of their wonderful first journey together, rubbing his hands and chuckling, till it pleased him to curl himself up into the sudden sleep of old age. Kim watched the last dusty sunshine fade out of the court, and played with his ghost-dagger and rosary. The clamour of Benares, oldest of all earth's cities, awake before the gods, day and night, beat round the walls as the seas roar round a breakwater. Now and again a Jain priest crossed the court with some small offering to the images, and swept the path about him, lest by chance he should take the life of a living thing. A lamp twinkled, and there followed the sound of a prayer. Kim watched the stars as they rose one after another in the still, sticky dark, till he fell asleep at the foot of the altar. That night he dreamed in Hindustani, with never an English word. "'Holy One, there is the child to whom we gave the medicine,' he said, about three o'clock in the morning when the lama, also waking from dreams, would have fared forth on pilgrimage. The jat will be here at the light. I am well answered. In my haste I would have done a wrong. He sat down on the cushions and returned to his rosary. Surely old folk are as children, he said pathetically. They desire a matter. Behold, it must be done at once, or they fret and weep. Many times when I was upon the road, I have been ready to stamp with my feet at the hindrance of an ox-cart in the way, or a mere cloud of dust. It was not so when I was a man a long time ago. Nonetheless, it is wrongful." But thou art indeed old, holy one. The thing was done. A cause was put out into the world, 
and old or young, sick or sound, knowing or unknowing, who can rein in the effect of that cause? Does the wheel hang still if a child spin it or a drunkard? Chela, this is a great and terrible world. I think it good, Kim yawned. What is there to eat? I have not eaten since yesterday even. I had forgotten thy need. Yonder is good potial tea and cold rice. We cannot walk far on such stuff. Kim felt all the Europeans' lust for flesh-meat, which is not accessible in a Jain temple. Yet, instead of going out at once with the begging-bowl, he stayed his stomach on slabs of cold rice till the full dawn. It brought the farmer, voluble, stuttering with gratitude. "'In the night the fever broke, and the sweat came,' he said. "'Feel here. His skin is fresh and new. He esteemed the salt lozenges, and took milk with greed.' He drew the cloth from the child's face, and it smiled sleepily at Kim. A little knot of Jane priests, silent but all observant, gathered by the temple door. They knew, and Kim knew that they knew, how the old lama had met his disciple. Being courteous folk, they had not obtruded themselves overnight by presence, word, or gesture. Wherefore Kim repaid them as the sun rose. "'Thank the gods of the Jains, brother,' he said, not knowing how these gods were named. "'The fever is indeed broken.' "'Look! See!' The lama beamed in the background upon his hosts of three years. "'Was there ever such a chela? He follows our lord the healer!' Now, the Jains officially recognize all the gods of the Hindu creed, as well as the lingam and the snake. They wear the Brahmitical thread. They adhere to every claim of Hindu caste law. But because they know and love the lama, because he was an old man, because he sought the way, because he was their guest, and because he catalogued long of nights with the head-priest, as free-thinking a metaphysician has ever split one hair into seventy, they murmured assent. "'Remember,' Kim bent over the child, "'this trouble may come again.' "'Not if thou hast the proper spell,' said the father. "'But in a little while we go away.' "'True!' said the lama to all the Jains. "'We go together upon the search whereof I have often spoken. I waited till my chela was ripe. Behold him, we go north. Never again shall I look upon this place of my rest, O people of good will.' "'But I am not a beggar.' The cultivator rose to his feet, clutching the child. "'Be still. Do not trouble the Holy One,' a priest cried. "'Go,' Kim whispered. "'Meet us again under the big railway bridge, and for the sake of all the gods of our Punjab, bring food, curry, pulse-cakes, fried in fat, and sweetmeats, especially sweetmeats. Be swift!' The pallor of hunger suited Kim very well as he stood, tall and slim, in his sad-coloured sweeping robes, one hand on his rosary, and the other in the attitude of benediction, 
faithfully copied from the lama. An English observer might have said that he looked rather like the young saint of a stained-glass window, whereas he was but a growing lad, faint with emptiness. Long and formal were the farewells, thrice ended and thrice renewed. The seeker, he who had invited the lama to that haven from far away Tibet, a silver-faced, hairless aesthetic, took no part in it, but meditated, as always, alone among the images. The others were very human, pressing small comforts upon the old man—a beetle-box, a fine new iron pen-case, a food-bag and such-like, warning him against the dangers of the world without, and prophesying a happy end to the search. Meanwhile, Kim, lonelier than ever, squatted on the steps, and swore to himself in the language of St. Xavier's. "'But it is my own fault,' he concluded. "'With Mahbub I ate Mahbub's bread, or Lurgan Sahib's. At St. Xavier's, three meals a day. Here I must jolly well look out for myself. Besides, I am not in good training. How I could eat a plate of beef now!' Is it finished, Holy One?" The lama, both hands raised, intoned a final blessing in ornate Chinese. "'I must lean on thy shoulder,' said he, as the temple gates closed. "'We grow stiff, I think.' The weight of a six-foot man is not light to steady through miles of crowded streets, and Kim, loaded down with bundles and packages for the way, was glad to reach the shadow of the railway bridge. "'Here we eat,' he said resolutely, as the cumber, blue-robed and smiling, hove in sight, a basket in one hand and the child on the other. "'Fall two holy ones!' he cried from fifty yards. They were by the shoal under the first bridge span, out of sight of hungry priests. "'Rice and good curry, cakes all warm and well scented with hing—asafadita, curds and sugar. King of my fields—this to the small son—let us show these holy men that we Jats of Jalandur can pay us service. I have heard the Jains would eat nothing that they had not cooked, but truly— he looked away politely over the broad river. Where there is no eye, there is no cast. "'And we,' said Kim, turning his back and heaping a leaf-platter for the lama, "'are beyond all castes.' They gorged themselves on the good food in silence, nor till he had licked the last of the sticky sweet stuff from his little finger did Kim note that the cambo was too girt for travel. "'If our roads lie together,' he said roughly, "'I go with thee. One does not often find a worker of miracles, and the child is still weak. But I am not altogether a reed.' He picked up his lathi, a five-foot male bamboo, ringed with bands of polished iron, and flourished it in the air. "'The jats are called quarrelsome, but that is not true.' except when we are crossed we are like our own buffaloes so be it said kim a good stick is a good reason the lama gazed placidly upstream where in long smudged perspective the ceaseless columns of smoke go up from the burning ghats by the river 
Now and again, despite all municipal regulations, the fragment of a half-burned body bobbed by on the full current. "'But for thee,' said the Cambor to Kim, drawing the child into his hairy breast, "'I might to-day have gone thither with this one. The priests tell us that Benares is holy, which none doubt, and desirable to die in. But I do not know their gods, and they ask for money, and when one has done one worship, a shaved head vows it is of none effect except one do another. Wash here, wash there, pour, drink, love, and scatter flowers, but always pay the priests. No, the Punjab for me, and the soil of the Jalandur Dorb for the best soil in it. I have said many times in the temple, I think, that if need be, the river will open at our feet. We will therefore go north, said the lama, rising. I remember a pleasant place set about with fruit trees, where one can walk in meditation, and the air is cooler there. It comes from the hills and the snow of the hills. What is the name? said Kim. How should I know? Didst thou not know that was after the army rose out of the earth and took thee away? I abode there in meditation, in a room against the dovecot, except when she talked eternally. Oh-ho! The woman from Kulu. That is by Saharanpur, Kim laughed. How does the spirit move thy master? Does he go afoot for the sake of past sins? The jat demanded cautiously. It is a far cry to Delhi. No, said Kim. I will beg ticket for the terrain. One does not own to the possession of money in India. Then, in the name of the gods, let us take the fire-carriage. My son is best in his mother's arms. The government has brought on us many taxes, but it gives us one good thing, the terrain that joins friends and unites the anxious. A wonderful matter is the terrain. End of chapter 11, part 1《Kim》by Rudyard Kipling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.《Kim》by Rudyard Kipling, read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Eleven, Part Two. They all piled into it a couple of hours later and slept through the heat of the day. The Cambo plied Kim with ten thousand questions as to the Lama's walk and work in life, and received some curious answers. Kim was content to be where he was, to look out upon the flat northwestern landscape, and to talk to the changing mob of fellow passengers. Even today tickets and ticket clippings are dark oppression to Indian rustics. They do not understand why, when they have paid for a magic piece of paper, strangers should punch great pieces out of the charm. 
So long and furious are the debates between travellers and Eurasian ticket-collectors. Kim assisted at two or three with grave advice, meant to darken counsel and to show off his wisdom before the lama and the admiring Cambo. But at Somna Road the fates sent him a matter to think upon. There tumbled into the compartment, as the train was moving off, a mean, lean little person, a Maratha, as far as Kim could judge, by the cock of the tight turban. His face was cut, his muslin upper garment was badly torn, and one leg was bandaged. He told them that a country cart had upset and nearly slain him. He was going to Delhi, where his son lived. Kim watched him closely. If, as he asserted, he had been rolled over and over on the earth, there should have been signs of gravel rash on the skin. But all his injuries seemed clean cuts, and a mere fall from a cart could not cast a man into such extremity of terror. As, with shaking fingers, he knotted up the torn cloth about his neck, he laid bare an amulet of the kind called Keeper-up of the Heart. Now, amulets are common enough, but they are not generally strung on square-plaited copper wire, and still fewer amulets bear black enamel on silver. There were none except the cambo and the lama in the compartment, which luckily was of an old type with solid ends. Kim made as to scratch in his bosom, and thereby lifted his own amulet. The Maratha's face changed altogether at the sight, and he disposed the amulet fairly on his breast. "'Yes,' he went on to the cambo, "'I was in haste, and the cart, driven by a bastard, bound its wheel in a water-cut, and besides the harm done to me there was lost a full dish of Tarkian. I was not a son of the charm,' a lucky man, "'that day.' "'That was a great loss,' said the Cambo, withdrawing interest. His experience of Benares had made him suspicious. "'Who cooked it?' said Kim. "'A woman!' the Maratha raised his eyes. "'But all women can cook Tarkian,' said the Cambo. "'It is a good curry, as I know.' "'Oh, yes, it is a good curry,' said the Maratha. "'And cheap,' said Kim. But what about caste? Oh, there is no caste when men go look for Tarkian, the Maratha replied in the prescribed cadence. Of whose service art thou? Of the service of this holy one, Kim pointed to the happy drowsy lama, who woke up with a jerk at the well-loved word. Ah, oh, he was sent from heaven to aid me. He is called friend of all the world. He is also called friend of the stars. He walks as a physician, his time being ripe. Great is his wisdom. And a son of the charm, said Kim under his breath, as the Cambo made haste to prepare a pipe, lest the Maratha should beg. And who is that? the Maratha asked, glancing sideways nervously. One whose child I, we have cured, who lies under great debt to us. Sit by the window, man from Jalandur. Here is a sick one. Hm! I have no desire to mix with chance-met wastrels. 
My ears are not long. I am not a woman wishing to overhear secrets. The Jat slid himself heavily into a far corner. Art thou anything of a healer? I am ten leagues deep in calamity, cried the Maratha, picking up the cue. This man is cut and bruised all over. I go about to cure him, Kim retorted. None interfered between thy babe and me. I am rebuked, said the Cambo meekly. I am thy debtor for the life of my son. Thou art a miracle worker. I know it. Show me the cuts. Kim bent over the Maharata's neck, his heart nearly choking him, for this was the great game with a vengeance. Now tell thy tale swiftly, brother, while I say a charm. I came from the south, where my work lay. One of us they slew by the roadside. Hast thou heard? Kim shook his head. He, of course, knew nothing of E-23's predecessor slain down south in the habit of an Arab trader. Having found a certain letter which I was sent to seek, I came away. I escaped from the city and ran to Mahau. So sure was I that none knew, I did not change my face. At Mahau, a woman brought charge against me of theft of jewellery in that city which I had left. Then I saw the cry was out against me. I ran from Mahau by night, bribing the police, who had been bribed to hand me over without questions to my enemies in the south. Then I lay in old Chitor city a week, a penitent in a temple. But I could not get rid of the letter which was my charge. I buried it under the queen's stone at Chitor, in the place known to us all. Kim did not know, but not for worlds would he have broken the thread. At Chitor, look you, I was all in King's country, for Kota to the east is beyond the Queen's law, and east again lie Jaipur and Gwalior. Neither love spies, and there is no justice. I was hunted like a wet jackal, but I broke through at Bandakui, where I heard there was a charge against me of murder in the city I had left, of the murder of a boy. They have both the corpse and the witnesses waiting. But cannot the government protect? We of the game are beyond protection. If we die, we die. Our names are blotted from the book. That is all. At Bandakui, where lives one of us, I thought to slip the scent by changing my face, and so made me a Maratha. Then I came to Agra, and would have turned back to Chitur to recover the letter. So sure I was I had slipped them. Therefore I did not send a tar telegram to any one saying where the letter lay. I wish the credit of it all. Kim nodded. He understood that feeling well. But at Agra, walking in the streets, a man cried a debt against me, and approaching with many witnesses, would hail me to the courts then and there. Oh, they are clever in the South. He recognized me as his agent for cotton. May he burn in hell for it. And wast thou? Oh, fool! I was the man they sought for the matter of the letter. I ran into the flesher's ward, and came out by the house of the Jew, who feared a riot, and pushed me forth. I came afoot to Somna Road. I had only money for my ticket to Delhi. 
and there, while I lay in a ditch with a fever, one sprang out of the bushes and beat me and cut me and searched me from head to foot, within earshot of the terrain it was. Why did he not slay thee out of hand? They are not so foolish. If I am taken in Delhi at the insistence of lawyers upon a proven charge of murder, my body is handed over to the state that desires it. I go back guarded, and then I die slowly for an example to the rest of us. The South is not my country. I run in circles like a goat with one eye. I have not eaten for two days. I am marked. He touched the filthy bandage on his leg. So they will know me at Delhi. Thou art safe in the terrain, at least. Live a year at the great game, and tell me that again. The wires will be out against me at Delhi, describing every tear and rag upon me. Twenty, a hundred, if need be, will have seen me slay that boy, and thou art useless. Kim knew enough of native methods of attack not to doubt that the case would be deadly complete, even to the corpse. The Maratha twitched his fingers with pain from time to time. The Cambo in his corner glared sullenly. The Lama was busy over his beads, and Kim, fundling doctor-fashion at the man's neck, thought out his plan between invocations. "'Hast thou a charm to change my shape? Else I am dead!' Five, ten minutes alone. If I had not been so pressed, then I might— Is he cured yet, miracle worker? said the Cambo, jealously. Thou hast chanted long enough. Nay, there is no cure for his hurts, as I see, except he sit for three days in the habit of a Bairagi. This is a common penance, often imposed on a fat trader by his spiritual teacher. "'One priest always goes about to make another priest,' was the retort. Like most grossly superstitious folk, the Cambo could not keep his tongue from deriding his church. "'Will thy son be a priest, then? It is time he took more of my quinine.' "'We jats are all buffaloes,' said the Cambo, softening anew. Kim rubbed a fingertip of bitterness on the child's trusting little lips. I have asked for nothing, he said sternly to the father, except food. Dost thou grudge me that? I go to heal another man. Have I thy leave, prince? Up flew the man's huge paws in supplication. Nay, nay, do not mock me thus. It pleases me to cure this sick one. Thou shalt acquire merit by aiding. What colour ash is there in thy pipe-bowl? White? That is auspicious. Was there raw turmeric among thy foodstuffs? I, I, open thy bundle. It was the usual collection of small oddments—bits of cloth, quack medicines, cheap fairings, a cloth full of atta, greyish, rough ground native flour, twists of down-country tobacco, tawdry pipe-stems, and a packet of curry-stuff, all wrapped in a quilt. Kim turned it over with the air of a wise warlock, muttering a Mohammedan invocation. "'This is wisdom I learned from the Sahibs,' he whispered to the Lama. And here, when one thinks of his training at Lurgan's, he spoke no more than the truth. 
there is a great evil in this man's fortune, as shown by the stars, which—which which troubles him. Shall I take it away? Friend of the stars, thou hast done well in all things. Let it be at thy pleasure. Is it another healing? Quick, quick, gasped the Maharata. The train may stop. A healing against the shadow of death, said Kim, mixing the Cambo's flour with the mingled charcoal and tobacco ash in the red earth bowl of the pipe. E-23, without a word, slipped off his turban and shook down his long black hair. That is my food, priest, the jat growled. A buffalo in the temple! Hast thou dared to look even thus far? said Kim. I must do mysteries before fools. But have a care for thine eyes. Is there a film before them already? I save the babe, and for return thou—oh, shameless! The man flinched at the direct gaze, for Kim was wholly in earnest. Shall I curse thee, or shall I— He picked up the outer cloth of the bundle, and threw it over the bowed head. Dare so much as to think a wish to see, and—and even I cannot save thee. Sit, be dumb. I am blind, dumb, forbear to curse. Come, child, we will play a game of hiding. Do not for my sake look from under the cloth. I see hope said E-23. What is thy scheme? This comes next, said Kim, plucking the thin body-shirt. E-23 hesitated, with all a northwest man's dislike of bearing his body. What is cast to a cut-throat? said Kim, rending it to the waist. We must make thee a yellow sadhu all over. Strip! Stripped swiftly, and shake thy hair over thine eyes, while I scatter the ash. Now, a cast-mark on thy forehead." He drew from his bosom the little survey paint-box and a cake of crimson lake. "'Art thou only a beginner?' said E-23, labouring literally for the dear life as he slid out of his body-wrappings, and stood clear in the loin-cloth, while Kim splashed a noble cast-mark on the ash-smeared brow. "'But two days enter to the game, brother,' Kim replied. "'Smear more ash on the bosom. "'Hast thou met a physician of sick pearls?' He switched out his long, tight-rolled turban-cloth, and with swiftest hands rolled it over and about his loins into the intricate devices of a sardu cincture. "'Ha! Dost thou know his touch, then? He was my teacher for a while. We must bar thy legs. Ash cures wounds. Smear it again. I was his pride once, but thou art almost better. The gods are kind to us. Give me that. It was a tin box of opium pills among the rubbish of the jats bundle. E-23 gulped down a half-handful. They are good against hunger, fear, and chill. And they shall make the eyes red, too, he explained. Now— I shall have heart to play the game. We lack only a sadhu's tongs. What of the old clothes?" Kim rolled them small, and stuffed them into the slack folds of his tunic. With a yellow ochre paint-cake he smeared the legs and the breast, great streaks, against the background of flour, ash, and turmeric. 
the blood on them is enough to hang thee, brother. Maybe, but no need to throw them out of the window. It is finished. His voice thrilled with a boy's pure delight in the game. Turn around and look, O Jat. The gods protect us, said the hooded Kambo, emerging like a buffalo from the reeds. But whither went the Maratha? What hast thou done? Kim had been trained by Lurgan Sahib, and E-23, by virtue of his business, was no bad actor. In place of the tremulous shrinking trader, there lolled against the corner an all-but-naked, ash-smeared, ochre-barred, dusty-haired sadhu, his swollen eyes—opium takes quick effect on an empty stomach—luminous with insolence and bestial lust, his legs crossed under him, Kim's brown rosary round his neck, and a scant yard of worn flowered chintz on his shoulders. The child buried his face in his amazed father's arms. "'Look up, princeling. We travel with warlocks, but they will not hurt thee. Oh, do not cry. What is the sense of curing a child one day and killing him with fright the next?' "'The child will be fortunate all his life. He has seen a great healing.' When I was a child, I made claymen and horses. I have made them too. Sir Banas, he comes in the night and makes them all alive at the back of our kitchen midden, piped the child. And so, thou art not frightened at anything, eh, prince? I was frightened because my father was frightened. I felt his arms shake. Oh, chicken man, said Kim, and even the abashed Jat laughed. I have done a healing on this poor trader. He must forgive his gains and his account-books, and sit by the wayside three nights to overcome the malignity of his enemies. The stars are against him. The fewer the money-lenders, the better, I say. But Sadu or Sadu, he should pay for my stuff on his shoulders. So? But that is thy child on thy shoulder, given over to the burning gat not two days ago. There remains one thing more. I did this charm in thy presence, because need was great. I changed his shape and his soul. None the less, if by any chance, O man from Jalandur, thou rememberest what thou hast seen, either among the elders sitting under the village tree, or in thine own house, or in company of thy priest, when he blesses thy cattle, a moraine will come among the buffaloes, and a fire in thy thatch, and rats in thy corn-bin, and the curse of our gods upon thy fields, that they may be barren before thy feet, and after thy ploughshare. This was part of an old curse picked up from a fakir at the Taksali gate in the days of Kim's innocence. It lost nothing by repetition. "'Cease, holy one! In mercy, cease!' cried the jat. "'Do not curse the household. I saw nothing, I heard nothing. I am thy cow!' And he made to grab at Kim's bare foot, beating rhythmically on the carriage floor. "'But since thou hast been permitted to aid me in the matter of a pinch of flour, and a little opium, and such trifles as I have honoured by using in my art, so will the gods return a blessing.' and he gave it at length to the man's immense relief. It was one that he had overheard from Lugan Sahib. 
the lama stared through his spectacles as he had not stared at the business of a disguisement. "'Friend of the stars,' he said at last, "'thou hast acquired great wisdom. Beware that it does not give birth to pride. No man having the law before his eyes speaks hastily of any matter which he has seen or encountered.' "'No, no, no, indeed!' cried the farmer, fearful lest the master should be minded to improve on the pupil. E-23, with relaxed mouth, gave himself up to the opium that is meat, tobacco, and medicine to the spent Asiatic. So, in a silence of awe and great miscomprehension, they slid into Delhi about lamp-lighting time. End of Chapter 11by Rudyard Kipling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kim by Rudyard Kipling. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 12, Part 1. Who hath desired the sea, the sight of salt water unbounded, the heave and the halt and the hurl and the crash of the comber wind-hounded, the sleek-barrelled swell before storm, grey, foamless, enormous, and growing, stark calm on the lap of the line, or the crazy-eyed hurricane blowing, his sea and no showing the same, his sea and the same neath all showing, his sea that his being fulfils, so and no otherwise, so and no otherwise, hill men desire their hills. The Sea and the Hills I have found my heart again, said E-23, under the cover of the platform's tumult. Hunger and fear make men dazed, or I might have thought of this escape before. I was right. They come to hunt for me. Thou hast saved my head. A group of yellow-trousered Punjab policemen, headed by a hot and perspiring young Englishman, parted the crowd about the carriages. Behind them, inconspicuous as a cat, ambled a small fat person who looked like a lawyer's tout. "'See the young Sahib reading from a paper. My description is in his hand,' said E-23. "'They go carriage by carriage, like fisher-folk netting a pool.' When the procession reached their compartment, E-23 was counting his beads with a steady jerk of the wrist, while Kim jeered at him for being so drugged as to lost the ringed fire-tongs which are the sadhu's distinguishing mark. The lama, deep in meditation, stared straight before him, and the farmer, glancing furtively, gathered up his belongings. "'Nothing here but a parcel of holy bolies said the Englishman aloud, and passed on amid a ripple of uneasiness, for native police mean extortion to the native all India over. "'The trouble now,' whispered E-23, "'lies in sending a wire as to the place where I hid that letter I was sent to find. I cannot go to the tar office in this disguise.' "'Is it not enough I have saved thy neck?' "'Not if the work be left unfinished.' 
Never did the healer of sick pearls tell thee so? Comes another sahib, ha! This was a tallish, sallowish district superintendent of police. Belt, helmet, polished spurs and all, strutting and twirling his dark moustache. "'What fools are these police sahibs?' said Kim genially. E-23 glanced up under his eyelids. "'It is well said,' he muttered in a changed voice. "'I go to drink water. Keep my place.' He blundered out almost into the Englishman's arms, and was badly worded in clumsy Urdu. "'Come not! You drunk! You mustn't bang about as though Delhi Station belonged to you, my friend!' E-23, not moving a muscle of his countenance, answered with a stream of the filthiest abuse, at which Kim naturally rejoined. It reminded him of the drummer-boys and the barrack-sweepers at Ambala, in the terrible time of his first schooling. "'My good fellow,' the Englishman drawled, "'Nickeljow, go back to your carriage.' Step by step, withdrawing deferentially and dropping his voice, the yellow sardou clomb back on to the carriage, cursing the DSP to remotest posterity by—here Kim almost jumped—by the curse of the Queen's Stone, by the writing under the Queen's Stone, and by an assortment of gods with wholly new names. "'I don't know what you're saying,' the Englishman flushed angrily but it's some piece of blasted impertinence. Come out of that!" E-23, affecting to misunderstand, gravely produced his ticket, which the Englishman wrenched angrily from his hand. "'Oh, Zaloom! What oppression!' growled the Jat from his corner. "'All for the sake of a jest, too!' He had been grinning at the freedom of the Sadhu's tongue. "'Thy charms do not work well to-day, Holy One!' The sadhu followed the policeman, fawning and supplicating. The ruck of passengers, busy with their babies and their bundles, had not noticed the affair. Kim slipped out behind him, for it flashed through his head that he had heard this angry, stupid sahib discursing loud personalities to an old lady near Ambala three years ago. "'It is well,' the sadhu whispered, jammed in the calling, shouting and bewildered press a Persian greyhound beneath his feet, and a cage full of yelling hawks, under charge of a Rajput falconer in the small of his back. "'He has gone now to send word of the letter which I hid. They told me he was in Peshwar. I might have known that he is like the crocodile, always at the ford. He has saved me from my present calamity, but I owe my life to thee.' "'Is he also one of us?' Kim ducked under a Miwa camel-driver's greasy armpit, and cannoned off a covey of jabbering Sikh matrons. "'Not less than the greatest. We are both fortunate. I will make report to him of what thou hast done. I am safe under his protection.' He bored through the edge of the crowd, besieging the carriages, and squatted by the bench near the telegraph office. "'Return, or they take thy place. Have no fear for the work, brother.' Or, my life, thou hast given me a breathing space, and Strickland Sahib has pulled me to land. We may work together at the game yet. Farewell." Kim hurried to his carriage, elated, bewildered, but a little nettled, in that he had no key to the secrets about him. "'I am only a beginner at the great game, that is sure. 
I could not have leapt into safety as did the Sadhu. He knew it was darkest under the lamp. I could not have thought to tell news under pretense of cursing. How clever was the Sahib! No matter. I saved the life of one. Where is the Kambo gone, Holy One? he whispered, as he took his seat in the now-crowded compartment. "'A fear gripped him,' the lama replied, with a touch of tender malice. "'He saw thee change the Maratha to a sadhu in the twinkling of an eye, as a protection against evil. That shook him. Then he saw the sadhu fall sheer into the hands of the polis, all the effect of thy art. Then he gathered up his son and fled, for he said that thou didst change a quiet traitor into an impudent bandier of words with sahibs, and he feared a like fate. Where is the sadhu? With the polis said Kim. Yet I saved the Kambo's child. The lama snuffed blandly. Ah, oh, Chela, see how thou art overtaken. Thou didst cure the Kambo's child solely to acquire merit, but thou didst put a spell on the Maratha with prideful workings. I watched thee and with sidelong glances to bewilder an old man and a foolish farmer whence calamity and suspicion kim controlled himself with an effort beyond his years not more than any other youngster did he like to eat dirt or to be misjudged but he saw himself in a cleft stick the train rolled out of delhi into the night it is true, he murmured. Where I have offended thee, I have done wrong. It is more, Chela. Thou hast loosed an act upon the world as a stone thrown into a pool, so spread the consequences thou canst not tell how far. This ignorance was well both for Kim's vanity and for the lama's peace of mind, when we think that there was then being handled in at Simla a code-wire reporting the arrival of E-23 at Delhi, and, more important, the whereabouts of a letter he had been commissioned to abstract. Incidentally, an overzealous policeman had arrested, on a charge of murder, done in a far southern state, a horribly indignant Ajmere cotton-broker, who was explaining himself to a Mr. Strickland on Delhi platform, while E-23 was paddling through byways into the locked heart of Delhi city. In two hours several telegrams had reached the angry minister of a southern state, reporting that all trace of a somewhat bruised Maratha had been lost, and by the time the leisurely train halted at Saranapur, the last ripple of the stone Kim helped to heave was lapping against the steps of a mosque in far-away room, where it disturbed a pious man at prayers. The lama made his in ample form near the dewy Bougainvillea trellis, 
near the platform, cheered by the clear sunshine and the presence of his disciple. "'We will put these things behind us,' he said, indicating the brazen engine and the gleaming track. "'The jolting of the terrain, though a wonderful thing, has turned my bones to water. We will use clean air henceforward.' "'Let us go to the Kulu woman's house,' said Kim, and stepped forth cheerily under the bundles. Early next morning, Saranapur ways clean and well-scented. He thought of the other mornings at St. Xavier's, and it topped his already thrice-heaped contentment. "'Where is all—where is all this new haste born from?' Wise men do not run about like chickens in the sun. We have come hundreds upon hundreds of coasts already, and till now I have scarcely been alone with thee an instant. How canst thou receive instructions, all jostled of crowds? How can I— I, whelmed by a flux of talk, meditate upon the way. Her tongue grows no shorter with the years, then, the disciple smiled. Nor her desire for charms. I remember once when I spoke of the wheel of life. The lama fumbled in his bosom for his latest copy. She was only curious about the devils that besiege children. She shall acquire merit by entertaining us in a little while, at an after-occasion, softly, softly. Now we will wander loose-foot, waiting upon the chain of things. The search is sure." So they travelled very easily across and among the broad, bloomful fruit-gardens, by way of Aminabad, Sahaiganj, Akrola of the Ford, and little Puhulesa, the line of the Siwaliks always to the north, and behind them again the snows. After long sweet sleep under the dry stars came the lordly, leisurely passage through a waking village begging-bowl held forth in silence, but eyes roving in defiance of the law, from sky's edge to sky's edge. Then would Kim return soft-footed through the dust to his master, under the shadow of a mango-tree, or the thinner shade of a white dune cirrus, to eat and drink at ease. At midday, after talk and a little wayfaring, they slept meeting the world refreshed when the air was cooler. Night found them adventuring into new territory. Some chosen village spied three hours before across the fat land and much disgust upon the road. There they told their tale, a new one each evening so far as Kim was concerned, and there they were made welcome either by priest or headman after the custom of the kindly East. When the shadows shortened and the lama leaned more heavily upon Kim, there was always the wheel of life to draw forth, to hold flat under wiped stones, and with a long straw to expound cycle by cycle. 
there sat the gods on high, and they were dreams of dreams. Here was our heaven and the world of the demigods, horsemen fighting among the hills. Here were the agonies done upon the beasts, souls ascending or descending the ladder, and therefore not to be interfered with. Here were the hells, hot and cold, and the abodes of tormented ghosts. Let the chaler study the troubles that came from overeating, bloated stomach, and burning bowels. Obediently, then, with bowed head and brown finger alert to follow the pointer, did the chaler study. But when they came to the human world, busy and profitless, that is just above the hells, his mind was distracted, for by the roadside trundled the very wheel itself, eating, drinking, trading, marrying, and quarrelling, all warmly alive. Often the lama made the living pictures the matter of his text, bidding Kim, too ready, note how the flesh takes a thousand thousand shapes, desirable or detestable, as men reckon, but in truth of no account either way, and how the stupid spirit, bond-slave to the hog, the dove, and the serpent, lusting after beetle-nut, a new yoke of oxen, women, or the favour of kings, is bound to follow the body through all the heavens and all the hells, and strictly round again. Sometimes a woman or a poor man, watching the ritual, it was nothing else, when the great yellow chart was unfolded, would throw a few flowers or a handful of cowries upon its edge. It sufficed these humble ones that they had met a holy one, who might be moved to remember them in his prayers. "'Cure them if they are sick!' said the lama, when Kim's sporting instincts woke. "'Cure them if they have fever, but by no means work charms. Remember what befell the Maratha.' "'Then all doing is evil?' Kim replied, lying out under a big tree at the fork of the dune road, watching the little ants run over his hand. To abstain from action is well, except to acquire merit. At the gates of learning we were taught that to abstain from action was unbefitting a sahib, and I am a sahib. Friend of all the world, the lama looked directly at Kim. I am an old man pleased with shows as are children. To those who follow the way there is neither black nor white, Hind nor Botiyal. We be all souls seeking escape. No matter what thy wisdom learned among Sahibs, when we came to my river thou wilt be freed from all illusion at my side. Hi, my bones ache for that river as they ached in the terrain but my spirits sit above my bones waiting the search is sure i am answered is it permitted to ask a question the lama inclined his stately head i ate thy bread for three years as thou knowst holy one whence came there 
is much wealth, as men count it, in Bodhiyal, the lama returned with composure. In my own place I have the illusion of honour. I ask for that I need. I am not concerned with the account. That is for my monastery. I, the black high seats in the monastery, and the novices, all in order. And he told stories, tracing with a finger in the dust, of the immense and sumptuous ritual of avalanche-guarded cathedrals, of processions and devil-dances, of the changing of monks and nuns into swine, of holy cities fifteen thousand feet in the air, of intrigue between monastery and monastery, of voices among the hills, and of the mysterious mirage that dances on dry snow. He spoke even of Lhasa, and of the Dalai Lama, whom he had seen and adored. Each long perfect day rose behind Kim for a barrier to cut him off from his race and his mother-tongue. He slipped back to thinking and dreaming in the vernacular, and mechanically followed the lama's ceremonial observances at eating, drinking, and the like. The old man's mind turned more and more to his monastery, as his eyes turned to the steadfast snows. His river troubled him nothing. Now and again, indeed, he would gaze long and long at a tuft or a twig, expecting, he said, the earth to cleave and deliver its blessing. But he was content to be with his disciple, at ease in the temperate wind that comes down from the dune. This was not Ceylon, nor Budagaya, nor Bombay, nor some grass-tangled ruins that he seemed to have stumbled upon two years ago. He spoke of those places as a scholar removed from vanity, as a seeker walking in humility, as an old man wise and temperate, illumining knowledge with brilliant insight, bit by bit, disconnectedly, each tale called up by some wayside thing, he spoke of all his wanderings up and down Hind, till Kim, who had loved him without reason, now loved him for fifty good reasons. So they enjoyed themselves in high felicity, abstaining, as the rule demands, from evil words, covetous desires, not overeating, nor lying in high beds, nor wearing rich clothes. Their stomachs told them the time, and the people brought them their food, as the saying is. They were lords of the villages of Aminabad, Sahaiganj, Akrola of the Ford, and little Fulesa where Kim gave the soulless woman a blessing. But news travels fast in India, and too soon shuffled across the cropland, bearing a basket of fruits with a box of Kabul grapes and gilt oranges, a white-whiskered servitor, a lean, dry Oria, begging them to bring the honour of their presence to his mistress, distressed in her mind that the lama had neglected her so long. "'Now do I remember,' the lama spoke as though it were a wholly new proposition. "'She is virtuous, but an inordinate talker.' Kim was sitting on the edge of a cow's manger, telling stories to a village smith's children. "'She will only ask for another son for her daughter, 
I have not forgotten her, he said. Let her acquire merit. Send word that we will come. They covered eleven miles through the fields in two days, and were overwhelmed with attentions at the end, for the old lady held a fine tradition of hospitality, to which she forced her son-in-law, who was under the thumb of his women-folk, and brought peace by borrowing of the money-lender. Age had not weakened her tongue or her memory, and in the hearing of not less than a dozen servants she paid Kim compliments that would have flung European audiences into unclean dismay. "'But thou still art the shameless beggar-brat of the Parau,' she shrilled. "'I have not forgotten thee. Wash ye and eat. The father of my daughter's son is gone away a while, so we poor women are dumb and useless.' For proof she harangued the entire household unsparingly, till food and drink were brought. And in the evening—the smoke-scented evening, copper dun and turquoise across the fields—it pleased her to order her palanquin to be set down in the untidy forecourt by smoky torchlight, and there, behind not too closely drawn curtains, she gossiped. "'Had the Holy One come alone, I should have received him otherwise, but with this rogue who can be too careful?" Maharani, said Kim, choosing as always the amplest title, is it my fault that none other than a sahib, a polis sahib, called the Maharani, whose face he— Jut! That was on the pilgrimage. When we travel, thou knowest the proverb called the Maharani a breaker of hearts and a dispenser of delights? To remember that I was true, so he did. That was in the time of the bloom of my beauty. She chuckled like a contented parrot above the sugar-lump. Now tell me of thy goings and comings, as much as may be without shame. How many maids and whose wives hang upon thine eyelashes? ye hail from Benares? I would have gone there again this year, but my daughter—I have only two sons. Fie! Such is the effect of these low plains. Now in Kulu men are elephants. But I would ask the Holy One—stand aside, rogue—a charm against most lamentable windy colics, that in mango time overtake my daughter's eldest. Two years back he gave me a powerful spell. Oh, holy one," said Kim, bubbling with mirth at the lama's rueful face. "It is true. I gave her one against wind. Teeth, teeth, teeth," snapped the old woman. "Cure them if they are sick," Kim quoted relishingly. "But by no means work charms. Remember what befell the Maratha." That was two rains ago. She wearied me with her continued importunity. The lama groaned as the unjust judge had groaned before him. Thus it comes. Take note, my chela, that even those who would follow the way are thrust aside by idle women. Three days through, when the child was sick, she talked to me. Ay, 
And to whom else should I talk? The boy's mother knew nothing, and the father, in the nights of the cold weather it was, pray to the gods, said he, forsooth, and turning over, snored. I gave her the charm. What is an old man to do? To abstain from action is well, except to acquire merit. Ah, oh, Chela, if thou desertest me, I am all alone. He found his milk teeth easily at any rate, said the old lady, but all priests are alike. Kim coughed severely. Being young, he did not approve of her flippancy. To importune the wise out of season is to invite calamity. There is a talking miner, the thrust came back with the well-remembered snap of the jewelled forefinger, over the stables which has picked up the very tone of the family priest. Maybe I forget honour to my guests. But if ye had seen him double his fist into his belly, which was like a half-grown gourd, and cry, Here is the pain, ye would forgive. I am half-minded to take the Hakim's medicine. He sells it cheap, and certainly it makes him as fat as Shiv's own bull. He does not deny remedies, but I doubted for the child because of the inauspicious colour of the bottles. The lama, under cover of the monologue, had faded out into the darkness toward the room prepared. "'Thou hast angered him, belike,' said Kim. "'Not he. He is wearied, and I forgot being a grandmother. None but a grandmother should ever oversee a child. Mothers are only fit for bearing. Tomorrow. When he sees how my daughter's son is grown, he will write the charms. Then, too, he can judge of the new Hakim's drugs. Who is the Hakim, Maharani? A wanderer, as thou art, but a most sober Bengali from Dhaka, a master of medicine. He relieved me of an oppression after meat by means of a small pill that wrought like devil unchained. He travels about now, vending preparations of great value. He has even papers printed in Angrisi, telling what things he has done for weak-backed men and slack women. He has been here four days, but hearing ye were coming, Hakims and priests are snake and tiger the world over, he has, I take it, gone to cover. While she drew breath after this volley, the ancient servant, sitting unrebuked on the edge of the torchlight, muttered, "'This house is a cattle-pound, as it were, for all charlatans and priests. Let the boy stop eating mangoes, but who can argue with a grandmother?' He raised his voice respectfully. "'Saiba, the Hakim sleeps after his meat. He is in the quarters behind the dovecot.' Kim bristled like an expectant terrier. To outface and down-talk a Calcutta-taught Bengali, a voluble Dakar drug-vendor, would be a good game. It was not seemly that the lama, and incidentally himself, should be thrown aside for such a one. He knew those curious bastard English advertisements at the backs of native newspapers. St. Xavier's boys sometimes brought them in by stealth to snigger over among their mates. 
for the language of the grateful patient recounting his symptoms is most simple and revealing. The Uria, not anxious to play off one parasite against the other, slunk away towards Dovecot. "'Yes,' said Kim, with measured scorn, "'their stock-in-trade is a little coloured water, and a very great shamelessness. Their prey are broken-down kings and overfed Bengalis. Their profit is in children who are not yet born.' The old lady chuckled. "'Do not be envious.' Charms are better, eh? I never gainsaid it. See that thy holy one writes me a good amulet by the morning. None but the ignorant deny. A thick, heavy voice boomed through the darkness as a figure came to rest, squatting. None but the ignorant deny the value of charms. None but the ignorant deny the value of medicine. A rat found a piece of turmeric, said he. "'I will open a grocer's shop,' Kim retorted. Battle was fairly joined now, and they heard the old lady stiffen to attention. "'The priest's son knows the names of his nurse and three gods,' says he. "'Hear me, or I will curse you by the three million great ones.' Decidedly, this invisible had an arrow or two in his quiver. He went on, "'I am but a teacher of the alphabet.' I have learned all the wisdom of the Sahibs. The Sahibs never grow old. They dance and they play like children when they are grandfathers. A strong-backed breed, piped the voice inside the palanquin. I have, too, our drugs which loosen humours of the head in hot and angry men. Zinna, well compounded when the moon stands in the proper house. Lielo earths I have, Alpen from China, that makes a man renew his youth and astonish his household. Saffron from Kashmir, and the best aslep of Kabul. Many people have died before. That I surely believe, said Kim. They knew the value of my drugs. I do not give my sick the mere ink in which a charm is written, but hot and rending drugs which descend and wrestle with the evil. "'Very mightily they do so,' sighed the old lady. The voice launched into an immense tale of misfortune and bankruptcy, studded with plentiful petitions to the government. "'But for my fate, which overrules all, I had been now in government employ. I bear a degree from the great school at Calcutta, whither maybe the son of this house shall go.' "'He shall indeed.' If our neighbour's brat can in a few years make an F.A. First Arts, she used the English word, of which she had heard so often. How much more shall children clever as some that I know bear away prizes at rich Calcutta? Never, said the voice, have I seen such a child, born in an auspicious hour, and— but for that colic which, alas, turning into black collars may carry him off like a pigeon, destined to many years he is enviable. "'Hi, my,' said the old lady, "'to praise children is inauspicious, or I could listen to this talk. But the back of the house is unguarded, and even in this soft air men think themselves to be men, and women we know. The child's father is away too.' And I must be Chowkadar, watchman, in my old age. Up, up! 
Take up the palanquin. Let the Hakim and the young priest settle between them whether charms or medicine most avail. Oh, worthless people, fetch tobacco for the guests, and round the homestead I go. The palanquin reeled off, followed by straggling torches and a horde of dogs. Twenty villages know the Saiba, her failings, her tongue, and her large charity. Twenty villages cheated her after immemorial custom, but no man would have stolen or robbed within her jurisdiction for any gift under heaven. None the less she made a great parade of her formal inspections, the riot of which could be heard halfway to Masuri. End of chapter twelve, part one. Kim by Roger Kipling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kim by Roger Kipling. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 12, Part 2. Kim relaxed as one auger must when he meets another. The Hakim, still squatting, slid over his hooker with a friendly foot, and Kim pulled at the good weed. The hangers-on expected grave professional debate, and perhaps a little free doctoring. To discuss medicine before the ignorant is of one piece with teaching the peacock to sing," said the Hakim. "'True courtesy,' Kim echoed, "'is very often inattention.' These, be it understood, were company manners, designed to impress. "'Hi! I have an ulcer on my leg,' cried a scullion. "'Look at it!' "'Get hence! Remove!' said the Hakim. "'Is it the habit of the place to pester honoured guests? Ye crowd in like buffaloes.' "'If the Saiba knew—' Kim began. "'Ay, ay, come away. They are meat for our mistress. When her young shaitan's colics are cured, perhaps we poor people may be suffered to—' "'The mistress fed thy wife when thou wast in jail for breaking the money-lender's head. Who speaks against her?' The old servitor curled his white moustaches savagely in the young moonlight. "'I am responsible for the honour of this house. Go!' And he drove the underlings before him. Said the Hakim, hardly more than shaping the words with his lips, "'How do you do, Mr. O'Hara? I am jolly glad to see you again.' Kim's hand clenched about the pipe-stem. Anywhere on the open road, perhaps, he would not have been astonished, but here, in this quiet backwater of life, he was not prepared for Hari Babu. It annoyed him, too, that he had been hoodwinked. "'Aha! I told you at luck now, Risurgam. How I shall rise again, and you shall not know me! But how much did you bet, eh?' He chewed leisurely upon a few cardamom seeds. But he breathed uneasily. "'But why come here, Babuji?' "'Ah, that is the question, as Shakespeare hath it. I come to congratulate you on your extraordinary efficient performance at Delhi.' "'Oh, I tell you, we were all proud of you. It was very neat and handy. Our mutual friend—he is an old friend of mine. 
He has been in some damn tight places. Now he will be in some more. He told me, I tell Mr. Lurgum, and he is pleased you graduate so nicely. All the department is pleased. For the first time in his life, Kim thrilled to the clean pride. It can be a deadly pitfall, nonetheless, of departmental praise, ensnaring praise from an equal of work appreciated by fellow workers. Earth has nothing on the same plane to compare with it. But, cried the Oriental in him, Babus do not travel far to retail compliments. "'Tell thy tale, Babu,' he said authoritatively. "'Oh, it is nothing. Only I was at Simla when the wire came in about what our mutual friend said he had hidden, and old Crichton—he looked to see how Kim would take this piece of audacity. "'The Colonel Sahib,' the boy from St. Xavier's corrected. "'Of course.' He found me at a loose string, and I had to go down to Chitto to find that beastly letter. I do not like the South. Too much railway travel. But I drew good travelling allowance. Ha-ha! I meet our mutual at Delhi on the way back. He lies quiet just now, and says Sadhu disguise suits him to the ground. Well, I hear what you have done so well so quickly— upon the instantaneous spur of the moment. I tell our mutual, you take the bally bun, by Jove. It was splendid. I come to tell you so. Mm. The frogs were busy in the ditches, and the moon slid to her setting. Some happy servant had gone out to commune with the night, and to beat upon a drum. Kim's next sentence was in the vernacular. How didst thou follow us? Oh, ah, that was nothing. I know from our mutual friend that you go to Saranpur. So I come on. Red lamas are not inconspicuous persons. I buy myself my drug-box, and I am very good doctor, really. I go to Akrola of the Ford and hear all about you, and I talk here and talk there. All the common people know what you do. I knew when the hospitable old lady sent the dooley. They have great recollections of the old lama's visits here. I know old ladies cannot keep their hands from medicine. So I am a doctor, and you hear my talk? I think it is very good. My word, Mr. O'Hara, they know about you and the lama for fifty miles, the common people. So I come. Do you mind? Babuji, said Kim, looking up at the broad grinning face. I am a sahib. "'My dear Mr. O'Hara, and I hope to play the great game.' "'You are subordinate to me departmentally at present.' "'Then why talk like an ape in a tree? Men do not come after one from Simla and change their dress for the sake of a few sweet words. I am not a child. Talk Hindi, and let us get to the yolk of the egg. Thou art here.' speaking not one word of truth in ten. Why art thou here? Give a straight answer. That is so very disconcerting of the Europeans, Mr. O'Hara. You should know a heap better at your time of life. But I want to know, said Kim, laughing. If it is the great game, I may help. How can I do anything if you book, babble, all round the shop? Hari Babu reached for the pipe and sucked it till it gurgled again. 
Now I will speak in vernacular. You sit tight, Mr. O'Hara. It concerns the pedigree of a white stallion. Still? That was finished long ago. When every one is dead, the great game is finished, not before. Listen to me till the end. There were five kings who prepared a sudden war three years ago, when thou wast given the stallion's pedigree by Mahbub Ali. Upon them, because of that news, and ere they were ready, fell our army. Ay, eight thousand men with guns, I remember that night. But the war was not pushed. That is the government custom. The troops were recalled because the government believed the five kings were cowed. And it is not cheap to feed men among the high passes. Hilas and Buna, rajas with guns, undertook for a price to guard the passes against all coming from the north. They protested both fear and friendship. He broke off with a giggle into English. Of course, I tell you this unofficially to elucidate political situation, Mr. O'Hara. Officially, I am debarred from criticizing any action of superiors. Now I go on. This pleased the government, anxious to avoid expense, and a bond was made for so many rupees a month that Hilas and Buna should guard the passes as soon as the state's troops were withdrawn. At that time—it was after we two met—I, who had been selling tea in Leh, became a clerk of accounts in the army. When the troops were withdrawn, I was left behind to pay the coolies who made new roads in the hills. This road-making was part of the bond between Buna, Hilas, and the government. So? And then? I tell you, it was jolly beastly cold up there too after summer," said Hari Babu confidently. I was afraid these Buna men would cut my throat every night for the pay-chest. My native sepoy guard, they laughed at me. By Jove, I was such a fearful man. Never mind that. I go on quilloquially. I send word many times that these two kings were sold to the north and Mahbub Ali, who was yet farther north, amply confirmed it. Nothing was done, only my feet were frozen and a toe dropped off. I sent word that the roads for which I was paying money to the diggers were being made for the feet of strangers and enemies. For? For the Russians. The thing was an open jest among the coolies. Then I was called down to tell what I knew by speech of tongue. Mahbub came south, too. See the end? Over the passes this year, after snow-melting, he shivered afresh, come two strangers under cover of shooting wild goats. They bear guns, but they bear also chains and levels and compasses. Oh-ho! The things get clearer. They are well received by Hilas and Buna. They make great promises. They speak as the mouthpiece of a kaiser with gifts. Up the valleys, down the valleys they go, saying, Here is a place to build a breastwork. Here can ye pitch a fort. Here can ye hold the road against an army. The very road for which I paid out the rupees monthly. The government knows, but does nothing. The three other kings, who were not paid for guarding the passes, 
Tell them by runner of the bad faith of Bunna and Hilas. When all the evil is done, look you, when those two strangers with the levellers and compasses make the five kings to believe that a great army would sweep up the passes to-morrow or the next day, hill people are all fools. Comes the order to me, Hari Babu, go north and see what those strangers do. I say to Crichton Saab, this is not a lawsuit that we go about to collect evidence. Hari returned to his English with a jerk. By Jove, I say, what the deuce do you not issue demi-official orders to some brave man to poison them, for an example? It is, if you permit the observation, most reprehensible laxity on your part. And Colonel Crichton, he laughed at me. It is all your beastly English pride. You think no one dare conspire. That is all Tommy rot. Kim smoked slowly, revolving the business, so far as he understood it, in his quick mind. Then thou goest forth to follow the strangers? No, to meet them. They are coming into Simla to sell their horns and heads to be dressed at Calcutta. They are exclusively sporting gentlemen, and they are allowed special facilities by the government. Of course, we always do that. It is our British pride. Then what is to fear from them? By Jove, they are not black people. I do all sorts of things with black people, of course. They are Russians, and highly unscrupulous people. I, I do not want to consort with them without a witness. Will they kill thee? Oh, that is nothing. I am good enough, Herbert Spencerian, I trust, to meet a little thing like death, which is all in my fate, you know. But they may beat me. Why? Hari Babu snapped his fingers with irritation. Of course, I shall affiliate myself to their camp in supernumerary capacity, or perhaps interpreter, or person mentally impotent and hungry, or some such thing. Then I must pick up what I can, I suppose. That is easy for me, as playing Mr. Doctor to the old lady. Only, only, you see, Mr. O'Hara, I am unfortunately Asiatic, which is serious detriment in some respects. And also so, I am Bengali, a fearful man. God made the hare and the Bengali. What shame! said Kim, quoting the proverb. It was process of evolution, I think, from primal necessity, but the fact remains in all the sui bono. I am oh, awfully fearful. I remember once they wanted to cut off my head on the road to Lhasa. No, I have never reached Lhasa. I sat down and cried, Mr. O'Hara, anticipating Chinese tortures. I do not suppose these two gentlemen will torture me, but I like to provide for possible contingency with European assistance in emergency. He coughed and spat out the cardamoms. It is purely unofficial intent to which you say, No, Babu, if you have no pressing engagement with your old man, perhaps you might divert him. Perhaps I can seduce his fancies. I should like you to keep in departmental touch with me till I find those sporting coves. I have great opinion of you since I met my friend at Delhi, and also I will embody your name in my official report when matter is finally adjudicated. It will be a great feather in your cap. 
that is why I come, really. Hm. The end of the tale, I think, is true. But what of the forepart? About the five kings? Oh, there is ever so much truth in it. A lot more than you would suppose, said Hari earnestly. You come, eh? I go from here straight down into the doom. It is very verdant and painted meads. I shall go to Masuri, to good old Masuri Praha, as the gentlemen and ladies say. Then by Rampur into Chini. That is the only way they can come. I do not like waiting in the cold, but we must wait for them. I went to walk with them to Simla. You see, one Russian is a Frenchman, and I know my French pretty well. I have friends in Chandanangur. He would certainly rejoice to see the hills again, said Kim meditatively. All his speech these ten days past has been of little else. If we go together— Oh, ah, uh, we can be quite strangers on the road, if your lama prefers. I shall just be four or five miles ahead. There is no hurry for hurry. That is a European pun. Ha, <laughs> ha. And you come after. There is plenty of time. They will plot and survey and map, of course. I shall go to-morrow, and you the next day, if you choose, eh? You go think on it till morning. By Jove, it is nearly morning now. He yawned ponderously, and with never a civil word lumbered off to his sleeping-place. But Kim slept little, and his thoughts ran in Hindustani. Well is the game called great. I was four days a scullion at Quetta, waiting on the wife of the man whose book I stole, and that was part of the great game. From the south, God knows how far, came up the Maratha, playing the great game in fear of his life. Now I shall go far and far into the north playing the great game. Truly it runs like a shuttle throughout all Hind, and my share and my joy—he smiled to the darkness—I owe to the Lama here, also to Mabub Ali, also to Crichton Sahib, but chiefly to the Holy One. He is right, a great and a wonderful world, and I am Kim, 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 alone, one person in the middle of it all. But I will see these strangers with their levels and chains." "'What was the upshot of last night's babble?' said the lama, after his orisons. "'There came a strolling seller of drugs, a hanger-on of the sahibas. Him I abolished by arguments and prayers, proving that our charms are worthier than his coloured waters. Alas, my charms! Is the virtuous woman still bent upon a new one? Very strictly. Then it must be written, or she will deafen me with her clamour. He fumbled at his pen-case. In the plains, said Kim, are always too many people. In the hills, as I understand, there are fewer. All oh, the hills and the snows upon the hills. The lama tore off a tiny square of paper fit to go in an amulet. But what dost thou know of the hills? They are very close. Kim thrust open the door and looked at the long peaceful line of the Himalayas flushed in morning gold. 
except in the dress of a Sahib, I have never set foot among them." The lama snuffed the wind wistfully. "'If we go north,' Kim put the question to the waking sunrise, "'would not much midday heat be avoided by walking among the lower hills at least? Is the charm made, Holy One?' "'I have written the names of seven silly devils, not one of whom is worth a grain of dust in the eye. Thus do foolish women drag us from the way." Hari Babu came out from behind the dovecot, washing his teeth with ostentatious ritual. Full-fleshed, heavy-haunched, bull-necked, and deep-voiced, he did not look like a fearful man. Kim signed almost imperceptibly that matters were in good train, and when the morning toilette was over, Hari Babu, in flowery speech, came to do honour to the lama. They ate, of course, apart, and afterwards the old lady, more or less veiled behind a window, returned to the vital business of green mango colics in the young. The lama's knowledge of medicine was, of course, sympathetic only. He believed that the dung of a black horse mixed with sulphur and carried in a snake-skin was a sound remedy for cholera. But the symbolism interested him far more than the science. Hari Babu deferred to these views with enchanting politeness, so that the lama called him a courteous physician. Hari Babu replied that he was no more than an inexpert dabbler in the mysteries. But at least, he thanked the gods, therefore, he knew when he sat in the presence of a master. He himself had been taught by the Sahibs, who do not consider expense, in the lordly halls of Calcutta. But, as he was ever first to acknowledge, there lay a wisdom behind earthly wisdom—the high and lonely law of meditation. Kim looked on with envy. The Hari Babu of his knowledge—oily, effusive, and nervous—was gone. Gone, too, was the brazen drug-vendor of overnight. There remained polished, polite, attentive, a sober, learned son of experience and adversity, gathering wisdom from the lama's lips. The old lady confided to Kim that these rare levels were beyond her. She liked charms with plenty of ink that one could wash off in water, swallow, and be done with. Else what was the use of the gods? She liked men and women, and she spoke of them, of kinglets she had known in the past, of her own youth and beauty, of the depredations of leopards and the eccentricities of love Asiatic, of the incidents of taxation, rack-renting, funeral ceremonies, her son-in-law, this by allusion easy to be followed, the care of the young, and the age's lack of decency. And Kim, as interested in the life of this world as she soon to leave it, squatted with his feet under the hem of his robe, drinking it all in, while the lama demolished one after another every theory of body-curing put together by Hari Babu. At noon the Babu strapped up his brass-bound drug-box, took his patent-leather shoes of ceremony in one hand, a gay blue and white umbrella in the other, and set off northwards to the dune, where, he said, he was in demand among the lesser kings of those parts. "'We will go in the cool of the evening, Chela," said the lama. 
that doctor, learned in physic and courtesy, affirms that the people among these lower hills are devout, generous, and much in need of a teacher. In a very short time, so says the Hakim, we come to cool air and the smell of pines. Ye go to the hills? And by Kulu Road? Oh, thrice happy, shrilled the old lady. But that I am a little pressed with the care of the homestead, I would take palanquin. But that would be shameless, and my reputation would be cracked. Oh, I know the road. Every march of the road I know. Ye will find charity throughout. It is not denied to the well-looking. I will give orders for provision. A servant to set you forth upon your journey. No? Then I will at least cook ye good food. What a woman is the Saiba, said the white-bearded Oriya, when a tumult rose by the kitchen quarters. She has never forgotten a friend. She has never forgotten an enemy in all her years. And her cookery! Whoa! He rubbed his slim stomach. There were cakes. There were sweetmeats. There was cold fowl stewed to rags with rice and prunes, enough to burden Kim like a mule. "'I am old and useless,' she said. "'None now love me, and none respect, but there are few to compare with me when I call on the gods and squat to my cooking-pots. Come again, O people of goodwill, holy one and disciple, come again. The room is always prepared, the welcome is always ready.' See the woman do not follow thy chela too openly. I know the woman of Kulu. Take heed, chela, lest he run away when he smells his hills again. Hi! Do not tilt the rice-bag upside down. Bless the household, holy one, and forgive thy servant her stupidities. She wiped her red old eyes on a corner of her veil, and clucked throatily. "'Woman, talk!' said the lama at last. "'But that is a woman's infirmity. I gave her a charm. She is upon the wheel, and wholly given over to the shows of this life. But none the less, Chela, she is virtuous, kindly, hospitable, of a whole and zealous heart.' Who shall say she does not acquire merit? Not I, holy one, said Kim, reslinging the bountiful provision on his shoulders. In my mind, behind my eyes, I have tried to picture such an one altogether freed from the wheel, desiring nothing, causing nothing, a nun, as it were. I'd, oh, imp! The lama almost laughed aloud. I cannot make the picture. Nor I. But there are many, many millions of lives before her. She will get wisdom a little, it may be, in each one. And will she forget how to make stews with saffron upon that road? Thy mind is set on things unworthy. But she has skill. I am refreshed all over. When we reach the lower hills, I shall be yet stronger. 
the Hakim spoke truly to me this morn when he said a breath from the snows blows away twenty years from the life of a man. We will go up into the hills, the high hills, up to the sound of the snow waters and the sound of the trees for a little while. The Hakim said that at any time we may return to the plains, for we do no more than skirt the pleasant places. The Hakim is full of learning, but he is in no way proud. I spoke to him when thou wast talking to the Saiba of a certain dizziness that lays hold upon the back of my neck in the night, and he said it rose from excessive heat to be cured by cool air. Upon consideration I marvelled that I had not thought of such a simple remedy. Didst thou tell him of thy search? said Kim, a little jealously. He preferred to sway the lama by his own speech, not through the wiles of Hari Babu. Assuredly. I told him of my dream, and of the manner by which I had acquired merit by causing thee to be taught wisdom. Thou didst not say I was a sahib? What need? I have told thee many times we be but two souls seeking escape. He said, and he is just therein, that the river of healing will break forth even as I dreamed at my feet, if need be. Having found the way, seest thou, that shall free me from the wheel, need I trouble to find a way about the mere fields of the earth, which are illusion, that were senseless. I have my dreams, night upon night repeated. I have the Jakarta, and I have thee, friend of all the world. It was written in thy horoscope that the red bull on a green field, I have not forgotten, should bring thee to honour. But who but I saw that prophecy accomplished? Indeed, I was the instrument. Thou shalt find me my river, being in return the instrument. The search is sure. He set his ivory-yellow face, serene and untroubled, toward the beckoning hills, his shadow shouldering fast before him in the dust. End of chapter 12「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. 
Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.